Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Whisper the word showgirl in America, Britain, France, throughout the world, and most people conjure up at least one, if not a series of potent images from the Moulin Rouge to Las Vegas, from Mistinget to Madonna. For some, she is a gorgeous creature emerging in a cloud of poudre de riz, from a dressing room decked with sheer silk stockings and haunted by backstage Johnnies to pose at the back of some spectacular review. Anonymous, shining, and strategically scattered with diamante, she stands with her arms held aloft, her scantily clad body framed by headdresses and back pieces which seem to defy gravity. Continuing on that quote, for others, the showgirl is a glorious can-can dancer cavorting across the Toulouse-Lautrec veining. Or she is Zola's blonde Venus in the novel Nana, who takes our audience's breath away with the power of her sex appeal. Alternately, she is Dietrich's unrepentant seductress Lola, perched atop a barrel in some seedy cabaret, a harbinger of fascism and doom, or she is the not-so-dumb blonde in a Busby Berkeley musical who's taken a chance on Hollywood Dream and come out tap dancing on top. These images tell a story, not just about our fascination with specific stars, but about the imaginative pull of a sorority of women. This delightfully evocative imagery is actually brought to us thanks to author Andrea Stewart, whose 1996 book Showgirls, not to be confused with the 1995 movie of the same name. <laughs> Which is one of my favorites. I know, I know. Uh, that's a whole episode, a whole other episode. Um, but her 1996 book was the first deep dive into the history and legacy of the showgirl, who Stewart calls, quote, one of the most instantly recognizable icons of modern times. And I think April, you and I, we could not agree more. While Stewart's book was written over 20 years ago, the showgirl remains to this day the ultimate emblem of sex appeal, glamour, and fantasy. And I think that you will agree with Cass and I in saying that this is something we can all use a little more of this past year in 2020. And this is actually our last week of season three. So we wanted to send you out with a showstopper. You're here. (laughs) (laughs) What better way to do that with a two-part episode that celebrates the longstanding relationship between fashion and the showgirl. And we really want to preface this episode with saying that this is in no way a history of the showgirl, nor a history of the showgirl costume. So if you want to learn more about those topics specifically, we highly recommend getting your hand on Stuart's book that we just mentioned called Showgirls. And you can also check out Jane Merrill's 2019 book, The Showgirl Costume and Illustrated History. And this episode today is actually an adaptation of a chapter that I contributed to that book. So it's only one of many insights Jane and the other authors in the book contributed into the history of what is really an iconic showgirl costume. And with that being said, I have three words for you, dress listeners. Fashion loves showgirls. (laughs) 
just think, you know, Josephine Baker, arguably the most famous showgirl of all, um, has been a source of inspiration for fashion designers ever since she took Paris by storm in the 1920s. You know, she was amused to designers like Paul Paré and also later Patrick Kelly and even today Marc Jacobs. And then there is the iconic showgirl costume itself with its skin-tight sparkling bodysuit and, you know, those towering headdresses. And these have also inspired designers from fashion giants like Victoria's Secret all the way up to the upper echelons of haute couture. And the showgirl has also made repeated appearances in the collections of the very recently retired Jean-Paul Gaultier, who became very, very fascinated with showgirls at a young age. But the relationship between fashion and the showgirl is nothing new. And when Gaultier sends feathered and bejeweled models down the runway— Time and again throughout his career, he, like so many others, was drawing upon a rich tradition that extends back well over 100 years. So perhaps we should start with this question today. What exactly is a showgirl? Yes. And today the term certainly connotes a certain archetype, especially in the United States where the Las Vegas showgirl has become kind of an American icon. But the American showgirl was undeniably inspired by her French counterparts who exist in similar incarnations in Paris venues, such as the Lido or the Crazy Horrors, which I'm a big fan of, and of course, also the Moulin Rouge. And Stuart tells us that in the early 20th century, the term had two associations, which we will also employ today. She says, quote, it applied to a specific theatrical role, those befeathered women posing in the spectacular reviews of the period, whose job it was to provide a feast for the eye. And it was a genericism applied to all women who appeared in popular theater, from chorus showgirl to major star. Just add fashion model, and we now have our cast of characters for today's tale, which starts in the Belle Epoque Paris, where the relationship between fashion and the showgirl blossomed out of the burgeoning music, dance hall, and theater traditions of the 19th and early 20th centuries. So we're talking about decades before television, film, and even radio. I mean, in this time, the music hall in particular was one of the most popular forms of entertainment on both sides of the Atlantic. And it was really this place where a variety of acts, including acrobats, singers, dancers, musicians, they entertained audiences from across the economic spectrum. So, you know, think the Moulin Rouge. Think can-can girls. Think celebrity culture, because this is the same period where Paris's leading reviews, like the Folie Bergère and the Moulin Rouge, which were established in 1869 and 1889, respectively, were reigned over by a cast of famed courtesans. The most famous being Emmeline d'Assignon, Carolina La Belle Otero, and Leanne de Pougy. And, you know, photographs of these beguiling beauties were circulated en masse on posters, postcards, you know, photographs, all of this helping to capture and enrapture the public's imaginations and hearts. And as we mentioned, these women were courtesans and thus occupied this sort of liminal world of the demimonde or the half world, um, as so-called because they kind of existed between these two worlds. And their fame and their fortune elevated their social status, while their autonomy, professions, and even very infamous affairs really kind of prevented them from ever being truly accepted into the upper echelons of so-called polite society. Which, who knows, maybe they didn't really care if they ever entered <laughs> that <laughs> kind of snobbish element of society. But mm-hmm. um, that remains for another day. 
Needless to say, the high profile status of these performers meant they also became fashion icons. Dressed by Paris's leading haute couturiers on and off the stage, they really collectively set this very high standard for the relationship between fashion and the theater that came to be a defining feature of performance entertainment. Women audiences attended plays expecting to see a fashion designer's latest work, while critics decried certain plays as being little more than thinly veiled fashion advertisements. And we're talking about the kind of the 1900s here. That's how embedded the display of fashion came to be in the theater's visual and literary narrative. And it is in this way that the stage became a way to court not just the male gaze, but the female consumer gaze. This new relationship between fashion, the stage, and consumers has to be considered within the context of three newly instituted concepts of the period that effectively revolutionized how people shopped, viewed, and otherwise consumed fashion. And we're talking about the department store, the fashion model, and the fashion show. But more on that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. So the development of the fashion model and fashion show can be attributed in no small part to British fashion designer, Lady Lucille Duff Gordon, who was one of the fashion show's first creators and one of its greatest innovators. She was undeniably instrumental in creating the concept of the fashion model that we recognize today. And we've, of course, talked about Lucille multiple times on the show. But just in case you don't remember, here's a little refresher. Known professionally by her first name, Lucille rose to international fame and fortune in the 19-teens with branches of her business in London, Paris, New York City, and Chicago, all by 1915. And part and parcel to her tremendous success was her genius ability to market her work um, to her clientele in the form of mannequin parades. Um, And this is kind of what her fashion shows were known as at the time. And Lucille's parades were theatrical productions in their own right, complete with a cast of highly trained models, a stage, dramatic lighting, music, dancing, storytelling, you know, all of these elements really kind of coalesce to create a spectacle of fashion unlike anything that anyone had seen before. And Lucille moved to New York City at the outbreak of World War I, and she transported her fashion show and models to the country, where the performance of fashion was actually nothing new. America's multi-million dollar clothing industry, as we know, of course, we've talked about this on Dress, was based on French, not American designs. And department stores created some of the very first public fashion shows in the early 1900s in an attempt to really capitalize on the excitement surrounding the latest imports from Paris. These events were free, they were open to the public, and these shows really brought this otherwise exclusive event to the masses while simultaneously cultivating an appetite for the theater of fashion. Lucille would expand upon the public fashion show to great success during her time in the United States, where she became the fashion authority, which was really a carefully crafted image masterminded by the designer herself. Yes, I always like to say that she was her own best publicist. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, And she really ensured the far reach of her influence by a masterful negotiation of two seemingly opposite concepts, the exclusive nature of haute couture and also mass public consumption. In 1916, Lucille partnered with Sears and Roebuck to create one of the very first designer ready-to-wear clothing lines in history. And this was also the same year that she took her fashion shows to the public in rented theaters all across the United States, bringing her designs to thousands and not just the affluent few. 
oh, to have been in one of those theaters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lucille's mannequin parades galvanized the popular imagination. In addition to her nationally syndicated fashion articles and her monthly column for Harper's Bazaar, her celebrity, it just, well, it extended across the country. The visionary British designer became an American institution. And this was a legacy further cemented through a very high-profile relationship with the eminent showman, Florence Ziegfeld Jr. Collectively, Lucille and Ziegfeld reinvented the showgirl as a fashion icon. And Ziegfeld took inspiration from the music hall reviews of Paris's famed Folie Bergère to create his own American version. And the Ziegfeld Follies debuted on Broadway in New York City in 1907 and would remain a fixture of the Broadway scene until 1931, although it must be said that there were subsequent reincarnations after that. But unlike a theatrical play, the music hall review consists of a series of different acts. You have music, you have dance, comedy sketches, you name it. And visionaries like Ziegfeld uh, developed the review to become a spectacular stage production with over-the-top sets and costumes. It is within this exciting montage that the showgirl as we know and love her today emerged, a chorus of beautiful women that appeared throughout the show. And perhaps none were more famous than the Ziegfeld girls who became the cornerstones of the Follies throughout its 23-year run. The Ziegfeld girls served in a variety of roles throughout each production, be it chorus girls dancing in sync or thanks to the addition of a famed fashion designer, fashion models. The enterprising impresarios of the music hall had long traded in marketing women's sex appeal to men, but fashion brought a new way to appeal to both men and women. In effect, fashion, like sex appeal, was a proven selling point. And in the case of the showgirl, audiences were guaranteed both for the price of one ticket. From 1915 to 1921, Lucille designed seven installments of the Ziegfeld Follies, in addition to numerous acts for Ziegfeld's upscale nightclub, Midnight Frolic, which, let's just, can we just go back in time and all hang out there? I, I'm, sign me <laughs> exactly. up. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> and she also designed uh, for three of his musical productions, all the while still working on her own fashion brand. I mean, was there anything that Lucille could not do? She, she <laughs> had her hands in all the pots, as I like to say. And her costume and fashion designs were not, in fact, mutually exclusive. And from the very beginning of her time at the Follies, entire scenes were conceived around the display of Lucille fashions. In 1915, a scene entitled A Girl's Trousseau featured showgirls closed in the height of 1915 Lucille fashions, walking through life-size Lucille fashion illustrations. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> Lucille, you know, she was, she was certainly not the sole inventor of the fashionable showgirl. You know, fashion had played a part in Ziegfeld's competition, the Schubert Brothers production, The Passing Follies, and Ziegfeld's own Follies since at least 1912. However, it was this collaboration between Lucille and Ziegfeld that would really result in a new type of showgirl, the professional model. Yeah, so it was after witnessing one of Lucille's packed public performances with his wife and Lucille client, Billy Burke, in 1916, that the quote-unquote maker of stars, Florence Ziegfeld, was inspired to transplant Lucille's scenes and its model directly to his music hall stage. Quote, he sat there and saw the curtain go up on a scene which might have come out of the Arabian Nights. And this is Lucille remembering. She says, Dolores, a wonderful and magnificent Dolores in an Eastern gown of brocade, sheathing her slim figure, glimmering like an opal with every movement, walks slowly across the stage. 
Hebe, Phyllis, and Florence followed her, a lovely trio of walking suits, parasols in their hands. So the parade went on. Three hours of it. (laughs) Ziegfeld sat it all out to the end and then implored Lucille, quote, I have got to have that scene of yours for my follies. That girl, Dolores, is marvelous. She'll be the sensation of New York. And thus, The Follies of 1917 was born. Lucille credits the production with changing theater history, claiming in her memoirs that this was the first review to ever introduce the showgirl, which she defined as a model who, quote, was there simply to look beautiful and wear beautiful clothes. So wearing clothing by a world-famous designer, the models provided a direct link to the glamorous world of high fashion that had not existed before. And this sort of added cachet elevated the otherwise anonymous performer into the spotlight, a place once reserved for headlighting celebrity talent alone. The Follies of 1917 featured Lucille models in not one but two scenes inspired by her fashion shows. So we have that of the Arabian Nights and then this quote-unquote episode of Chiffon. (laughs) (laughs) The latter was a bridal scene set in a replica of Lucille's showrooms and starred model Kathleen Mary Rose known professionally as Dolores, as a quote-unquote empress of fashion. At six feet tall, the statuesque Dolores cut a striking figure in her Ziegfeld Follies debut, which simultaneously marked her departure from Lucille's employ. Lucille recalled that, quote, the whole of New York paid homage to her beauty. Dolores was feted and worshipped as though she had been a queen, but she never came back to the showroom again. Her days as a mannequin were over. And Dolores actually appeared both on the Folly stage and then in fashion magazines across the country, including Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, where she was featured along her fellow Ziegfeld Lucille showgirls, Hebe and Dinner's Odd. Dolores also was friends with uh, the fashion designer Valentina, too, who we've already done an episode on. But um, Lucille's contributions to the Ziegfeld Follies earned the music hall a reputation for being fashion forward. So Women's Wear Daily in particular commented time and time again on the clothing worn by the Ziegfeld girls down to the smallest of details. Headlines for one of my favorite articles was, the bow knot is exalted as a style theme. (laughs) And this was in 1927. However, six years after Lucille and Ziegfeld's partnership had ended, and it is perhaps because of Lucille's departure that Ziegfeld felt comfortable taking credit for the Follies fashion-forward reputation. Because in 1923, he told Ladies Home Journal, quote, As a matter of fact, we not only influence but often lead the fashions. It has been my custom to bring back from Paris every year anywhere from 12 to 24 gowns, hats, and cloaks. Not the things that are shown to American buyers, but things that are ahead of the style. We put the short skirt into everyday wear. And of course, the short skirt that's, that he is referring to at this time extended below the knee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that is, uh, no, you know, there's really no denying that many of today's most ubiquitous articles of women's clothing really find precedent in the costumes of late 19th and early 20th century performers. The stage has always been a safe place for experimentation, daring, and bold expressions of sexual, gendered, clothed identities that society, you know, otherwise deemed inappropriate for one reason or another. Showgirls, but also circus performers, dancers, singers, actresses, were really the first to wear any length of shortened skirts, shorts, pants, bikinis, (laughs) years before individuals were brave enough to take, you know, these styles from the stage to the streets. More on the showgirl fashion after a brief sponsor break. 
welcome back. The Ziegfeld Follies was not the only production to cultivate an intimate relationship with high fashion during this period, nor was Lucille the most famous designer to partner with the music hall stage. Just as the size and spectacle of the Ziegfeld Follies grew throughout the 19-teens and the 1920s, so too did the review a grand spectacle of post-World War I Paris, which came with its own set of star performers and designers. The most famous of the latter is none other than the, quote, father of Art Deco himself, the Russian-born Ramond Tirtov, or as he was most widely known and celebrated, Erte. Despite working right up to his death in 1990 at the age of 97, Erte's name remains synonymous with the 1920s, a period during which he produced a prolific amount of work for theater. Lesser known, though, is perhaps his work in fashion. Yeah, and actually, he is very surprising to me to find out that it was while working for the world-renowned fashion designer Paul Poiret that Erte undertook his first costume design job, co-designing the smash hit play Le Minaret in 1913 with Jose Zamora, who was another Poiret employee. So where Poiret really took credit and was given the design credit, you know, the boldly outlined seductresses that are found in the production's costume illustrations are 100% Erte. His signature style was already very well developed by this period. And after leaving Poiré's employment in 1914, Erte was actually hired as a fashion designer for the American department stores, Henry Bindel and B. Altman and Company. And he also became an illustrator for both Vogue and Harper's Bazaar around the same time. Although Harper's Bazaar almost immediately secured an exclusive contract to really combat uh, competition with Erte. So from 1915 until 19. 36, Erte's work appeared in full, vibrant color on over 200 covers of the magazines, and then his designs in black and white were found within its pages. Fashion and fantasy merge in Erte's wonderful fashion illustrations for Harper's Bazaar, which each have a story to tell, whether it be the queen Amphithrite hunting for the perfect swimming costume or the goddess Orithea longing for a new evening gown. <laughs> you know, one illustration after another and another is occupied by these really regal Amazonian beauties with bold Grecian profiles who appear swathed in any number of decadent fabrics, whether it be, you know, this lush draped brocade or a glittering lame. You know, they were also dripping in tassels of roses or ropes of pearls. And they, they, they just basically demand the reader's attention. And they're also heavily made up. Um, their expressions present a, a opposed nonchalant seduction that is that is quite captivating, it must be said. And these type of illustrations earned Erte the magazine's praise as, quote, the foremost designer of original fashions, end quote. But his designs were always a little more fantastical than realistic. Right. <laughs> so, well, Erte enjoyed um, a career in fashion throughout his entire life. His most dramatic, magical work was always to be found on the stage. Yes, and beginning in 1916, Erte's beguiling reveries took flight in the French music halls owned by Theodore Doyen, Madame Racimi, who gave the young artist unbridled artistic expression in his set and costume designs. And it was for Racimi's 1917 review, Gabette de Paris, uh, that he first worked with the famed performer Mistin Get. Quote, I designed lavish costumes for her, with long trains and huge feather headdresses, which she had never worn before, end quote. And indeed, Mistengat's name became synonymous with those 
over-the-top costumes, skyrocketing plumed headwear, but it was actually a look that she adopted from another performer, the incomparable and ever-fashionable Gabby DeLee. Delee is perhaps best remembered today for her role in introducing the first American jazz band to Europe during World War I in the revue Les et le Tombe, in which she starred um, at the Casino de Paris. But Miss Dinguette credited the review with representing, quote, the birth of the music hall as we now know it, with its profusion of ostrich feathers, satins, nudes, monumental sets, and spectacular transformation scenes. So Delee was this really internationally renowned performer in her day and really thought of her being responsible for setting the standard for these colossal feathered headdresses that we most associate with the showgirl. And her extravagant displays of dress were an essential and also integral component of her image. And she cultivated that image through high-profile collaborations with some famous costume and fashion designers, including Etienne Drienne and also Lucille, Lady Duff Gordon. And Miss Dinguette said, quote, Though it is true that I never imitated anybody, this did not prevent me from eyeing what Gabby Lee bought and buying what she had her eye on. <laughs> so Delee's theatrical costumes and personal clothing garnered worldwide media attention, but was really always her headwear for which she became the most famous. In an article simply entitled Hats, the Green Book magazine recounted the power of Gabby's mountainous millinery in a 1916 Irving Berlin review, quote, when Gabby stepped out at the opening of Stop, Look, Listen, New York gasped at the first millinery confection. Throughout the performance, it continued to gasp. It has seen plenty of hats in its day, but never such extraordinary headdresses as Gabby of the Lilies wore. Daly exclaimed to Theater Magazine in 1916, quote, My hat is the soul of my costume. It is me, my personality, my individuality, not a covering for the head, but an ornament. My whole theory of proper dressing, wearing something that no one else wears, end quote. And she certainly did that. Yes. <laughs> both, both on and off stage, actually. And, and fashion kind of defined her career until her untimely death in 1920. But her legacy continues to endure in the costumes of performers that we know and love today, such as Cher, Lady Gaga, and of course, the showgirls of the remaining Paris and Vegas reviews. And if you want to learn more about Delee's extraordinary life, you can actually check out our episode dedicated to her from season one. And on that note, we actually are concluding today's episode. So you can join us Thursday for part two as we continue to unpack this incredible relationship between fashion and the showgirl, beginning with a discussion of one of the most famous showgirls of all, Miss Josephine Baker. Until then, may you consider letting your inner showgirl sparkle in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you all. So if you would like to write to us, you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you'll find images accompanying each week's episode. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. If you have a moment and would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we would sincerely appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.